Welcome to the first episode of a special collaboration between the Burn Bag Podcast and the Atlantic Council's Skullcroft Center for Strategy and Security, as we highlight contributions to the Center's 100 ideas for the first 100 days of the Biden administration. To introduce this new series, we speak to the Center's director, Barry Pavel, who gives us an overview of the project and tells us a bit more about the Skullcroft Center and its work. We then speak to our first two distinguished contributors, General David Petraeus and Ambassador Daniel Freed. General Petraeus talks to us about his idea for ending endless wars in the Middle East, and Ambassador Freed outlines a new U.S. strategy towards Russia's Vladimir Putin. So Barry, I want to kind of get an idea of what the Scowcroft Center does, because there are many centers within the Atlantic Council, and the Scowcroft Center is focused on strategy and security. And so what really is the goal? What is the mission of the Scowcroft Center? And what is the work that you guys put out? I could talk for hours about that, but let, let me be, be very brief. Um, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, think tank uh, units in Washington, and we do a lot of things that are similar. But the one thing we try to really focus on is um, foresight, that is long range um, projections. And then development of strategy, which is what are our core goals in key areas and how do you want to get there? Um, it, it's really important to have a, a strategic framework when you're addressing things that come up in the real world, new policy ideas, because if you don't have sort of a core sort of pathway, you know, any road's going to get you there and you may not um, end up really achieving your core goals. And so we really try hard to focus on uh, the long-range projections, but also on how do we bring those long-range projections back to today to inform today's policy and strategy choices. And so we do a lot of other things, but that's really the core ethic. Um, and always with uh, an audience that is busy decision makers. So how do we get to them in a cogent way? How do we help inform their work? How do we have practical impact? We don't just explore issues or think about things. We're, we're all about changing things in the real world. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Scowcroft Center's namesake and inspiration, a former National Security Advisor, Brent Scowcroft. Could you please tell our audience a bit about him and perhaps how the center is carrying on his legacy? It's a great question. Um, the only two-time National Security Advisor in uh, U.S. history, um, arguably the architect of the National Security Council system, uh, arguably the greatest strategist in the history of the United States. His biography, I highly commend, called The Strategist, um, about his career. Um, and he is just widely recognized as the, the most um, effective uh, statesperson that helped to guide the United States through uh, a very, very rocky time. We think, we think today is complex and unpredictable. Um, we can talk about that. And so his legacy is really. Um, bipartisanship, uh, strategy, integrity, sort of how to ensure that the United States has a consistent bipartisan approach that's guided by a strategic vision. So we, that we seek to advance that ethos and that legacy in, in everything we do. The last part that's worth mentioning is he was very big into mentorship. And so uh, a core part of our of our mission is helping to mentor the next generation of policy and strategy leaders. And that's, I think, a common strand between uh, the Scope Center and the Burn Bag podcast. As, 
at the podcast, we definitely want to reach a lot of young people and teach them about all these security issues. So I think this partnership is perfect. And with this partnership, actually, we'll be we'll be working with you on highlighting some of the great ideas in the project, the 100 ideas for the first 100 days of the Biden administration. Barry, could you tell us a bit more about this project and what inspired the Skullcroft Center to sort of go forward with this project? So I was thinking late last year after the election, uh, I was thinking about the time we're in now, the beginning of of an entirely new administration. And having been somebody who has been on the inside on um, several administrations at those times, it's a very busy time. It's a time for new ideas. Uh, It's a time for um, creative thinking. Uh, and a time where they're doing a lot of strategic reviews of major policies, Afghanistan, China, uh, transatlantic relations, et cetera. So um, technology security, supply chain. So um, the thinking I had was, how, how do we get some cogent ideas? We'll continue with our normal work, reports and issue briefs. Um, but how do we get a few cogent ideas into the sort of pipeline just as they're looking at uh, what to do on some of these big issues. So the thought was not to, not to suggest ideas that we already know are on their radar. Like we already know they're re-entering the, trying to re-enter the JCPOA with, with uh, the other parties and Iran. So that's not an idea we would put into this uh, platform. The two main criteria that we came up with were either an issue that's not already on their radar, but it should be, or uh, it's an issue that's already on their radar, but it's handled in a, in a different way, uh, in, a, in a way that's not already going to be sort of in their mainstream thinking. So with those two criteria, we have already gotten a wide range of really interesting contributions from a very wide range of people, both very experienced people as well as up and coming leaders. So we're really thrilled so far and we're looking forward to the, to the rest of this 100 day series. And that's one of the most interesting aspects of your 100-day project, that being the Scowcroft Center's project, is given that it's, it's unique, right? You're providing new ideas, new perspectives, or new spins uh, on current policy issues. And so we at the Burnbag Podcast are incredibly honored to uh, embark on this collaboration. So Barry, thank you so much uh, for helping us kick off this collaboration. And to all of our listeners, I highly encourage you to check out the Center's work. It will be linked uh, in the episode description. And with that, we will head into the first episode of our 100 Days Collaboration. General David Petraeus served as the former director of the Central Intelligence Agency after a 37-year-long distinguished career in the U.S. military. He is regarded as one of the foremost military leaders in the post-9-11 era. He served as the commander of the U.S. Central Command, which oversaw all U.S. troops in the Middle East, and he led international coalition forces in the Afghanistan war. Notably, General Petraeus also oversaw the surge in Iraq in 2007, developing the Counterinsurgency Field Manual, a strategy which was credited with clamping down on violence in Iraq during that time. Now, this idea, as the general will lay out, is critically important. For all of you listening, the Iraq War lasted from 2003 to 2011 and cost trillions of dollars. And the war in Afghanistan began in 2001 and is continuing until this day. While troop levels in both of these countries has wavered over the years, 
both see 2,500 U.S. troops in country, with a conversation still ongoing about whether or not U.S. troops will fully withdraw. Well, it was really important enough to be included as one of the ideas. It's not the biggest of the ideas that should guide the administration, which clearly should be something that involves the U.S.-China relationship. But it's nonetheless a, a very important issue with which the administration will have to deal, and that is the issue of endless wars and of the understandable desire to end endless wars. But there's an issue there, and that is that this desire often doesn't recognize that by ending U.S. involvement in endless wars, the wars don't end. They continue. In fact, they, in some cases, will get worse. And so there has to be a keen awareness uh, that we should try to end endless wars in a way that is durable, uh, that will be sustained. Uh, the outcome uh, won't be one that uh, vanishes within months, years, whatever. Uh, and if we just pull U.S. forces out, again, these wars are likely to get worse in many cases. And we have learned that the hard way uh, in some cases in the past. General Petraeus then discusses why he believes now is the appropriate time for the United States to address the scope of its involvement in endless wars in the Middle East notably in Iraq and Afghanistan? Well, I think in some cases, because there could be very significant decisions required. Uh, as an example, uh, when it comes to Afghanistan, we are on a glide path toward a potential reduction of all U.S. forces in Afghanistan by the end of April in accordance with an agreement that we signed with the Taliban. Unfortunately, the Taliban have not uh, done what it was that they agreed to do. They have not observed the commitments that they made to reduce violence and so forth. If anything, they're carrying out quite a substantial campaign of assassinations and terrorist activities and so forth. Uh, and so that's a decision which is again approaching. Uh, it is one that will need to be taken not just by the U.S., but in concert with our NATO allies. It is a topic that has just been discussed uh, by our new Secretary of Defense, uh, Lloyd Austin, together with his uh, NATO counterparts at the defense ministerials uh, of NATO. Uh, and so again, this is an issue that is, um, again, you may not like the issue, but the issue is going to force itself upon you. The fight against Islamist extremists is also something, obviously, that I was very heavily engaged in. Uh, commanding uh, forces at the two, three, and four-star levels uh, in Iraq, ultimately commanding the surge there, then commanding U.S. Central Command, which includes all of the greater Middle East and central and part of South Asia, then as the commander in Afghanistan at the height of that operation, uh, and then as the director of the CIA. And I have retained a keen interest in those different endeavors. And I want to point out that you know no one wants to see endless wars and more than do those who have been engaged in them, particularly those who have been privileged to command America's sons and daughters and uh, those of, of other nations in these different operations, again, against Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, and others. These do pose significant security issues for the United States. Uh, we should remember, for example, that we went to Afghanistan because that's where the 9-11 attacks were planned, when Al-Qaeda had a sanctuary uh, in the eastern part of the country during the rule of the Taliban of the bulk of that country. 
And in fact, another of the conditions that the Taliban have not honored is the uh, agreement uh, to sever all ties with Al-Qaeda and to guarantee that they won't allow Al-Qaeda to have such a sanctuary again. And of course, Al-Qaeda has tried to reestablish such a sanctuary in eastern Afghanistan, uh, even as we have been uh, in Afghanistan in, in substantial numbers. Tragically, now the Islamic State also has an affiliate in the Afghanistan-Pakistan region, the Khorasan Group, as it's called, uh, and it also seems to have be drawn to this area of Afghanistan, eastern Afghanistan, where it too would like to have a sanctuary. Beyond that, of course, Afghanistan is also the platform from which we conduct regional counterterrorism operations. And of course, these can be significant as well, such as the one that was conducted in my final months as the commander in Afghanistan, uh, when our JSOC forces operating under the CIA for that night conducted the operation from eastern Afghanistan that brought Osama bin Laden to justice. The Iraq war ended in 2011, yet U.S. involvement in Iraq has persisted amidst the rise of ISIS in the mid-2010s and the lingering threat of Iran. The Afghanistan war, which started 20 years ago, is still ongoing. Currently, there are peace talks between the Afghan government and the Taliban, which are taking place in Doha. However, the outcome and consequences of those peace talks are still unclear. General Petraeus provides his recommendation on how the Biden administration should approach the issue of ending endless wars. Well, each situation is unique. Uh, and in some cases, sustained commitments will be required for a number of years. Let's recognize that we still have well over 30,000 troops on uh, the Korean Peninsula. Uh, we have 30,000 troops actually still in Japan. Uh, now, obviously, they're, they're not getting shot at. They're not taking casualties. In many cases, families are there with them. Uh, as they are in many of the different deployments that we have around the world, but they are there for a reason. It typically has to do uh, with various strategic goals and objectives that we have for our forces together with those of our allies and partners around the world. Uh, in many cases, I think that the solution for our involvement will be to acknowledge that we need to have a sustained commitment that again, you can't just walk away from this uh, because it will get much worse. Uh, in Afghanistan, for example, the outcome, I think, of a withdrawal of U.S. forces and our enablers would be a civil war, such as you saw uh, really when the uh, government that was supported by the Soviet Union for two years after their departure collapsed when they cut off funding to it. Uh, and that brought out not just the various insurgent groups uh, that are making life so miserable for the Afghan people, but also we'll see a return of warlords and their forces from northern parts of the country. And they'll be all converging on Kabul once again, as was the tragic situation prior to the Taliban ultimately uh, establishing their control over the bulk of the country. So a sustained commitment, though, has to be sustainable, and sustainability is measured in terms of blood and treasure. Uh, and I think, frankly, that the small number of troops that we now have in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, Iraq is 2,500 troops, compare that with the 165,000 American men and women in uniform that I was privileged to command during the surge with tens of thousands of coalition and hundreds of thousands of Iraqis uh, in addition. Syria, again, less than a couple of thousand troops uh, in a very important interest there. That's where, of course, we ultimately 
uh, defeated the Islamic State, destroyed its caliphate and its capital in Raqqa, having earlier done that to the uh, Iraqi caliphate of, established by the Islamic State with its capital in Mosul. Uh, and then troops in other areas, again, where they are necessary to continue to maintain pressure on these Islamist extremist groups that can pose such challenges for our NATO allies in, in Europe, uh, our partners in the greater Middle East and Central and South Asia and beyond, and certainly for our own homeland. Uh, that's why we're there, that's why we have stayed. If we can get a durable agreement, uh, it, then by all means, uh, then we should withdraw. We should continue support in various forms perhaps, um, but a durable agreement is actually not likely to be the outcome if the enemy knows that you want to leave. And we've actually made that quite clear to the enemy. You may recall in a, pre a previous, previous administration that the date of the drawdown was announced in the same speech in which the buildup was announced. Um, the most previous administration made it very uh, clearly known that they wanted to withdraw and that the negotiation was a vehicle to enable that withdrawal. Well, that doesn't get you the best conditions at the bargaining table, needless to say. And in fact, the Taliban's goals in these bargaining uh, talks, the negotiations, um, have been essentially to get us out of Afghanistan, at least to reduce our forces very considerably, and then to get their forces uh, that have been detained out of detention. And that, in fact, took place, thousands of them, and already many hundreds of them have been detained once again by Afghan forces and put back in detention because they didn't honor the conditions uh, of their release from detention, which was certainly not to return to the front lines. So again, I, I think that we have to recognize that, again, you don't end endless wars just by pulling our forces out, the war goes on. Uh, and it is likely to get worse uh, in that you won't even get a negotiated settlement that you would really seek and that would be durable and acceptable um, unless the enemy realizes that you're willing to stay longer. And so a sustained, sustainable commitment, I think, is the way to do this while still reducing very substantially from what we had at the height of these different operations so that we can rightly focus on other challenges that have emerged over the course of the last 10 or 20 years, particularly the return of great power rivalries, especially that in the Indo-Pacific region as it's termed between the United States and China, but also the resurgence of Russia, the challenges with North Korea and Iran, uh, issues with cyber uh, criminals, uh, nation state actors and terrorists and so forth. So, lots of other challenges out there to which we need to uh, devote resources. And the key is to keep what it is that we're doing in the endless wars, these fights against Islamist extremists in particular, uh, from detracting from these other efforts uh, and to draw it down to, to a size that is, again, very sustainable. Keep in mind that as the world's military superpower, the U.S. is a bit like the guy in the circus who gets a plate on a stick and gets it spinning and then does others and keeps them all spinning, comes back. Of course, the biggest plate and perhaps bigger than all of the others at this point in time might be that of the U.S.-China relationship, that of which also includes our allies and partners. But there will be all of these other plates on sticks representing the other challenges and threats that exist in the 
security realm. And we've got to keep all of those going. So it's imperative that you do all that you must do as efficiently, as economically, as effectively as you can, so that it is sustainable because you do need to sustain the commitment against this particular set of threats that's represented by Islamist extremists. We now highlight Ambassador Daniel Freed's idea for the 100 Days Project. Ambassador Freed served for over four decades in the U.S. Foreign Service, where he was instrumental in American policy in Europe following the fall of the Soviet Union. Ambassador Freed served as U.S. Ambassador to Poland, Assistant Secretary of State for Europe, and as Special Assistant and Senior Director at the National Security Council, among many other crucial postings. Ambassador Freed's idea comes at a perilous time in U.S.-Russia relations, amidst the imprisonment of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny after a poisoning attempt. The massive solar winds hacking, which affected multiple sensitive U.S. agencies and was attributed to Russia by the U.S. intelligence community, and controversies around the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which has implications for Europe's reliance on Russian energy. The Biden administration is going to have to formulate its policy toward Putin's Russia, probably before they want to. Uh, They have to contend with Putin's ongoing aggression, which might get worse. And they have to do so based on timing that they would probably prefer, uh, prefer not be so rushed. They have to decide how to respond to the repression of lots of Russians because of the protests against uh, Alexei Navalny's arrest and imprisonment. They have to decide how to respond to the impasse with Germany over the Nord Stream 2 Russian gas project. Again, they'd like to wait, but it doesn't matter what they want. They're going to have to make decisions. So I wanted to frame, frame up the issues that the Biden administration faces in formulating its policy toward Putin's Russia. This is a, the Biden team is well equipped to do so. They're serious people, but not all of their team is in place. In fact, most of the key members are not. So it places a burden on the people that are because of the timing. They don't have the luxury of time and there's never enough in government. Ambassador Freed then provides his recommendation for how the Biden administration should deal with Putin's Russia. There are two major authoritarian powers, one greater, China, one lesser, Russia, that are challenging the United States and its allies, not merely on the ground, which they are, but also in a kind of almost neo-ideological struggle, not between communism and democracy, but between democracy and authoritarianism. Putin and Chinese President Xi believe that authoritarianism works better, that it is the wave of the future. That's what they believe. And in that, they are not original. We saw that in the 1930s, authoritarians believed that they too were the wave of the future. That contest is a serious one. 
No, it's not an ideological struggle like the Cold War. But when China tries to gain the international system and Russia tries to disrupt it by invading its neighbors, attacking our elections and using dirty money to hurt democratic governments uh, in Central Europe, then the West has to decide how to respond. And Russia is one of those challenges. It's not the only one. But ignoring Russia doesn't mean that the problem goes away. Russia has, under Putin, not Russia as a nation, but Putin's Russia, has a way of forcing its way to our attention by its aggression. And the Biden team, I think, recognizes this. There are some people with deep knowledge of uh, Putin's Russia, including Secretary of State Blinken and President Biden himself. And they're being forced to make decisions, as I said, earlier than they would like. And those decisions will be crucial. They will set the stage for the next four years. Joe Biden is the fifth U.S. president that Vladimir Putin has dealt with as the jure leader of Russia. Moreover, recent constitutional changes have permitted Vladimir Putin to be Russian leader until 2036 if he so chooses. Ambassador Freed discusses his recommendation amidst these circumstances. Any reasonable policy toward Putin's Russia is going to have roughly four pillars. One of them is resisting Putin's aggression. That's the most urgent and the biggest one at the moment. A second pillar is stabilizing the relationship. And the Biden administration has moved out on that second pillar uh, by extending the New START Treaty. And I, I support them. This is an important pillar of the relationship. The third pillar, rather thin, but it's there, is to cooperate in areas where we have overlapping interests. And we shouldn't hesitate to do so. The fourth is to invest in a better future with Russia by reaching out to Russian society, by reaching out both to those democratic activists, but Russian people in general. Now, you can discuss, it's fair to discuss the content of each of those pillars, the order, the relationship between them, the details, but I think any reasonable Russia policy will contain something like those four pillars. And I think that this administration will come up with some Russia policy like that. Um, I think that Fiona Hill uh, from the Trump administration could have done it too, with Wes Mitchell, the uh, Trump era assistant secretary of state for Europe. They got it. It's not that it's such a hard policy, but when you have a president like Trump, who basically is on Putin's side and shares Putin's worldview that authoritarianism is the wave of the future, which I fear Trump did, then it's impossible to articulate that kind of a policy and impossible to develop a common approach between the United States and Europe, which is needed. Uh, so a second challenge for the Biden administration is to develop its policy not on its own and then try to sell it to the Europeans, but to develop that policy through consultations with the Europeans. There is a range of views in Europe about how to deal with Russia. But if, you, if the Biden people want to have a common transatlantic policy, there are plenty 
of Europeans who agree with the kind of balanced policy that I suggested, and the Biden people can find allies. Um, in Germany, in France, despite some of the differences we have about tone, I think that a, a consensus can be shaped. And then you have countries like the UK, Sweden, Poland, the Baltic states, who basically are very strong on Russia policy and see things in a very realistic manner and would be natural allies in constructing that policy. But it's got to be a joint project. Uh, George H.W. Bush used the phrase partners in leadership to describe what he hoped would be U.S.-German relations. Well, I would take that phrase and repurpose it to describe, to describe U.S.-European relations in general. This is not a time for the U.S. to dictate. It, it won't work. It is a time for the U.S. to work with its European allies to develop common approaches. I think there is an audience for that. And I think, well, I'll be interested to see what happens in the next few weeks. I think President Biden is inclined in that direction. He is the most pro-European president the United States has had since George H.W. Bush. He came of age, <laughs> this may shock you, during the administration of John F. Kennedy. A high point, in, in a sense, of transatlantic solidarity. I think this is in his bones, which is a good thing. I think the foundation for a strong and effective combined transatlantic policy with respect to Putin's Russia is possible, and I think we'll get there. And that concludes episode one of our 100 Days Project in collaboration with the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center. A very special thanks to General David Petraeus and Ambassador Daniel Freed. Make sure to check out the episode description for additional information about the 100 Days Project, and be sure to stay tuned for future episodes highlighting future ideas. Thank you. <laughs>